0: And welcome to the Wartime FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armas. Our guest today is Shamir Karkal, co founder and CEO of Sila, a banking and payments platform that aims to break open the financial system and make it easy for any company to offer out of the box financial services. Shamir is also a true fintech pioneer and legend, having played a crucial part in building the infrastructure that would pave the way for online banking. As in 2009, he co-founded Simple, the first digital bank of its kind in the US, and later headed the open banking platform group at BVA. In this episode, we discuss Shamir's fascinating background and how he in fact comes from a long line of Indian bankers, the story behind Simple and the ups and downs they face launching the first independent digital bank in the US, and what led them to an eventual acquisition by BBVA, launching Sila and his approach as a second-time fintech founder, why he's so excited about the future and is convinced these are the early days for the industry, founder lessons, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation as much as I did. Shamir, welcome to the Wartum FinTech Podcast. Couldn't be more excited to have you here. How's it going? How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Miguel. As uh, I'm like tired, uh, worn out, and living the dream, right? It's <laughs> like, hey, you start a company, this is what you sign up for. Just hold on to the rocket, right?
0: You went in eyes wide open. This is oh, this yes.
1: not your first rodeo, right? It's not. Second and arguably third, actually.
0: Third, damn. So maybe we could talk about that. Tell us a bit about those first few rodeos and, and then also about your background. I'm sure our listeners will love to hear.
1: Totally. How
0: far back do you want me to go with the background? <laughs> as, as, as far back as you think it's interesting.
1: <laughs> well, so in that case, I'll bore you with some stories which I don't usually talk about. So about a hundred years ago, a guy called Keens actually, Pretty famous in the economics world. Before he became famous in the economics world, he created a plan for the Indian financial system right after World War I. And that plan was then implemented mostly between World War I and World War II. And then India became independent and all of that. One of the main people who ended up implementing that plan was my grandfather. He was the chief accountant, which is basically like the CFO for the Imperial Bank of India, which was the central bank. It was the largest bank. It was central and retail. (laughs) And he did that for that was his career. And eventually the Imperial Bank was split up into what is the RBI, which is now the Reserve Bank of India, and the State Bank of India, because after independence was like regulators and bankers should be separate, should be the same thing, right? (laughs) And so the you know the independent government did that. And he went to the SBI side and then retired. So, yeah, so the short answer is like, my family is like bankers going all the way back. Uh, in your DNA. In, my, in my grandfather's generation and my great-grandfather's generation, basically my uncles and uncles really, it's all men, started the entire Indian banking industry. All of the banks, if you go back and look in the early 20th century, they're all like one small community from South India who started. <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird and then growing up in the 80s my mom and dad were bankers too i learned how to count stacks of cash as a like a 6 year old running around in underground vaults cuz i went to pick up my mom from work <laughs> and or, or my dad would drive us somewhere right so it's just you know that that was my life like in the, as a kid i wrote my first check at the age of 10 and i wrote my first computer program at the age of 10 as well and you know as a teenager as one does i decided to rebel I was not going into the family business and I went off and became a software engineer. Uh, And look at me now.
0: (laughs) Little did you know, it was a shortcut. It was a different, different. Yeah, 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 yeah. So
1: I became a software engineer, came to the US, went to business school, worked at McKinsey. And then in 2009, a friend from business school sent me an email saying, let's start a retail bank. And you'll see how crazy I am that in July of 2009. I thought that was a great idea. I've actually blogged about it on Medium, the, that original email. had just laid out this like vision for how banking should actually work and how it should help people rather than work to make money by confusing them. <laughs> and I was like, yes, that is how it should be. Why isn't it like that? And that then leads to the process of like, maybe we can make it like that, right? And that's why I got excited. I was actually based in Brussels at the time. And, and funny anecdote, this was like a week after I joined Twitter. And I was based in Brussels, but I was on vacation in India. And I was at a wildlife sanctuary where I just got charged by a wild elephant. And then then within a few days of that, Josh sends me this email saying, hey, let's start a retail bank. And I'm like, sure. So I'm like, now looking back at it, I'm like, July of 09 was like a really crazy time for me. <laughs> Uh, it. It. Uh, I left McKinsey, moved from Brussels to New York, and late '09 started up Simple with Josh. Right, we incorporated and, and raised a little bit of money. From first check was actually Jerry Newman, great guy, one of the best angel investors, one of the best people in investing anywhere. And then the reality of banking hit us, and first email in July of '09 to launching Simple took 3 years because we launched in July of 2012 and the way i put it is like we did everything wrong before we did it right <laughs> because nobody had ever done it and it was funny just like especially pitching to vcs because there were all the vcs who were like there's no market for this and that really kind of like surprised me i'm like what but then there's the other vcs who just assumed it was impossible to do And in between were the people who believed it was worth doing and possible to do. And that was finding that slice was actually very hard. Raising money is never easy, and it wasn't easy back then, even way harder. But like, it still wasn't the biggest problem, right? Like, the biggest problem was always figuring out the tech and the regulatory structure and the banking partners and other partners you actually need to launch in your bank. And nobody had done it, so we had to figure it all out. It took a while. And to bring that whole story of like my background around at some point in this, and it was like late nine, early 2010, I just like called my mom and I told her I'm starting a bank. And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, mom, that's like a big deal. And she was like, whatever. Nobody in our family has done it for a while, but okay.
0: Like, <laughs> Did she maybe want you to start it back in
1: India or was she okay? No, she just was like, she just accepts what our her crazy children do. Actually, my sister has started a bank too. So we are running one for one now. And so she's just like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, this is, yeah, you, you can't win.
0: So nowadays, 2021, I mean, launching a new bank or even a fintech, there are a lot of providers that you can rely on, right? And, and a lot of them have been on the podcast as guests, but... And there's a blueprint and a number of top companies that people gravitate to for all the services that you need to get a bank launched. And probably the best teams can do it within a year or so, or maybe even less than that, depending on the product. So you kind of alluded to this, that wasn't the case for you. Tell us about the the zero to one, if you will. How did you find providers or, or did you build it in-house, right? A lot of the services. And then you know, about that journey of building something new in a new market.
1: Yeah. To summarize the journey, it was like, you get knocked down, but you get up again. <laughs> and it was just, most of it was just like sheer persistence. So we initially, Josh emailed me in July of 09. I just pulled out the McKinsey deck on how to start a bank. And I told Josh, yeah, it takes like a few computers and a license from the Fed and $10 million. Uh, he forgets the $10 million part I mentioned. But like, yeah, it's not like people do this all the time. And the fact is that people used to, between 2000 and 2008, every year in the U.S., there were between 100 and 300 new banks. So the average was like three or four new, fully licensed, fully chartered banks a week in the U.S. There was an active market of like de novo banking. There were like consultants in that space. McKinsey had done some for some of the larger guys. Utah ILCs were a thing. And yeah, it was just, I left the US in summer of 08 and moved to Europe, right? And that's where I was. And what I had not realized, I mean, of course I knew, (laughs) they did lots of crazy stuff during the crisis, but like I hadn't realized that between summer of 08 and today, I think there's now like 10 or 11 new banks that have been chartered. So we went from a minimum of 100 a year (laughs) down to like less than one a year, right? And I actually from... 08 to like, I think, 14, it was actually zero. So, what the regulators, mainly the FDIC, just hung out a closed for business sign. And they were like, no more new charters for anybody while well, we figure out this mess in the financial system, right? And I didn't know that in July of 09. We figured it out quickly. <laughs> it's not like uh, we spent years trying to get a charter. We spent a month or two, and then we were like, oh shit, no charter option at all, no matter how much money you raise. And I mean, literally that, no matter how much money you raise. There was two guys in a basement in Brooklyn with like 50K and a lot of dreams. No charter for you. A team that we got introduced to who had former secretary of the treasury, three-star general, Navy admiral, and like the star studded who's who of like everything, really. And they had like 2 billion in PE money. They didn't get a charter either. And the FDIC was like, Completely consistent. Nobody's getting a charter, no matter who you are. And so we realized that. And we were like, well, then how can we do banking legally <laughs> without a charter? And then we we're like, well, we have to find somebody who has a charter and work with them. We thought, well, actually, you know, that kind of makes sense. I mean, a charter is about like fractional reserve banking, it's about managing compliance with reporting. There's a lot of stuff that comes with the charter. We're not changing any of that. I'm like, what? magical new balance sheet innovation that we are doing. And it's like, just we want a place to park the cash. <laughs> uh, what all the innovation we want to do is in the consumer experience of banking. And maybe some on the payment side as well, but you know that's got very little to do with like fractional reserve banking and balance sheet and all of that. So we'll just find a partner bank and work with them. And tech, uh, we'll just get some off-the-shelf tech And uh, again, with my consulting background, I was like, let's go to like the FISERBs and FISs and Jack Henrys, and let's go and start talking to banks that might partner with us. And that's where we then learned about the next level of like, hey, actually getting banks to partner with you, it's kind of hard today. It's not easy. Back then, it was like, what are you even talking about? I do not understand the words coming out of your mouth, right? And I remember vividly, like we spoke to this one sales guy for, I don't remember which one it was, but one of the big core providers. And he was telling us like, yes, the score that we have can do everything and, you know, it'll do this and we can configure it. Anything you need, we have been there, done that. And I was like, great. Can you give us your API docs? He was like, API? What does that mean? And I was just like, this is 2010. You're a salesman for a tech product and you don't know the meaning of the word API? Right? And that was the state of banking technology in 2010. It hadn't really changed between like 1980 and 2000. And, and so the idea of like customer like us actually writing code was something that none of those guys had even thought of. <laughs> right, They wrote the COBOL mainframe code that you needed <laughs> to configure your system. It's just the idea. That I was like, no, that does not. So anyway, that's where we ran slap bang into the tech problem and then ran into the bank problem. And what we ended up doing was like discovering the prepaid card industry, being like, hey, the prepaid card industry exists. They actually have modern tech. There's platforms there that were written in the 2000s and actually had APIs and were in the at the core of them, they were real time because nobody in like 05 was writing a batch based system. And then the problem was the product itself wasn't what we wanted, but the tech actually worked quite well for what we wanted. Then the product that we wanted was a checking account. And there were folks who did that, like Bancorp, like off-the-shelf checking accounts, which they mostly sold to like wealth managers. And we're like, hey, as part of a wealth management offering, you want to offer checking account services to your large clients, we can do that. But they had no tech. I mean, they had a website and they would like change the colors on the website for their different customers, right? And I was like, no, 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 no. We need the... Flexible technology that the best we can find is in the prepaid space. We need this product. It's a checking account, not a prepaid card, and we need to marry them. That's what took about two plus years, two, two and a half years. And doing it like many, many missteps. We raised money. We spoke to 70 venture firms in less than a year to get our Series A around in July of 2010. We had term sheets from three banks. That's why the VCs were willing to invest in like, hey, you have three bank term sheets. You'll sign one, right? It will work. And then we went to our preferred bank, and I was in the office of the CEO, ready to sign the contract. Basically, uh, all two days of meetings with the team at the bank, and final meeting with the CEO, and he just came in, started chatting, and then got pulled out by two guys. And we waited half an hour. We're like, well, okay, fine. We'll. It doesn't matter, right? Like, we don't have to actually do any. Real discussion with him. This is just the final meet and greet before you. So right. he's not coming back. We have to go catch a flight back to New York. Let's go. I'm like, week goes by. I'm like, where's the contract? We're supposed to sign the contract. Send me the contract. Two weeks go by. Where's the contract? And then they got a cease and desist from the OTS. I'm like, oh, those guys <laughs> pulled him out. Where the regulators that were there to audit them. Ah, No bank for you. I'm like, what happened to bank number two? Cease and desist from the OTS. Okay, I guess it's bank number three then, right? What happened to bank number three? We just went from being priority number five on their list to being priority number 50 on their list because everybody else in the industry, all of them much bigger than a 5% venture-funded startup, suddenly decided to go to them because the other banks in the industry just got season desists, right? So that meant like suddenly, like we're like, I have money. I have a team of engineers. I got no bank anymore. <laughs> I'm like, back to square one. And there were so many like we just thought we had everything figured out and got hit over the head, picked ourselves up, lost six months, but kept building. Finally figured it out and launched in July of 2012 with Bancorp as our bank and TXVI as our processor.
0: Ah, fascinating. Did you ever run across a prepaid company called E-Count? That one is not familiar to me. And yeah, They were acquired by Citigroup and... Okay. I ended up having an internship within that division. It was working at a startup, at a fintech startup in 2010-11 while working at Citigroup. And I was wearing shorts, but I didn't connect that. This was fintech, right? No one called it fintech. but
1: Nobody called it fintech. It was banking or it was prepaid or it was wealth management or other things. But there was no concept of fintech.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, it's been... uh, to a decade since you launched, you have a, a new endeavor now, which I'm super excited to hear about. And, and that's uh Sila, right? Maybe you can tell us a bit about Sila and and you know, also where does the name come from? Because it's uh, I kind of like it.
1: So kind of the journey, right? Like simple launched in July of 12 and got acquired by BBVA in March of 14. And there's a whole story behind that, and it was a good outcome. Financially speaking, 117 million exit for a company that had raised less than 20. So, you know, everybody made at least 2x from the investor perspective. Some people made 6x. We distributed 14 million to employees, 100 employees, excluding the founders, leave the founders out of it. So we made a lot of people, not millionaires, there's a couple of those, but like 100k, 500k, and not just the senior management, right? We had like customer service folks who came into my office after we told them we were getting acquired, they thought they were getting fired. They went out and bought houses. So you know, we made sure that even the customer service person who joined like two weeks before the acquisition fully accelerated and invested all their options. And they even, they made not that much money, but they made money on the deal. Obviously the older employees made back. Hmm. So I'm proud of that, actually. But then a few months after that, I was in Madrid. I was talking to the BBVA team, and they mentioned this idea of building an API platform. And my reaction was like, yes, please do it. The world needs API platforms in banking. If this had existed, Josh and I wouldn't have spent three years launching Simple. We could have done it in a year, maybe. And then how much different would the world be? But please do it right. And then I quickly realized that it was really just an idea. I mean, there wasn't even a document put together. So I put together a document and sent it off and it catalyzed an internal ventures team at BBVA. Long story short, I left Simple, moved to BBVA and spent a couple of years building API platforms, one in Spain and one in the US. And they were internal ventures at BBVA. So that's how I'm like, did I do, have I done two now? or Is this my second or my third? Depends on how you count internal ventures, right? It is different from like a venture-funded startup, but there are similarities. The We built and launched them, the BBVA open platform in the US and the API marketplace in Spain. And I think technically they were like trailblazers in the world of banking and then you know won awards and all of that stuff. But it was frustrating for me personally because in this open platform in the US, for example, you could onboard and integrate into the open platform in like the sandbox in like two weeks. Coding was quick, easy, docs, everything was public, very straightforward, right? As soon as you wanted to go from sandbox to production, it only takes 18 months. (laughs) It's like, what? Why? Because of the internal processes at the bank, which we've worked hard to streamline, but big banks are big banks. And it wasn't, you know, we never got it down to like, even like nine months, I think, ever. So that was frustrating as hell for me because I'm like, this None of this stuff should exist. And finally, I left in 2017. And I thought about it for a while. And I was like, I still want to do this. I still want to solve this problem. I just maybe don't define it exactly the same way. And I definitely don't want to do it at a large bank. <laughs> and the problem is just that it's too hard to program with money. If you wake up in the US or Colombia or any part of the planet tomorrow, and you decide that you want to program with email, voiceover IP, SMS, any internet protocol, really. I mean, you need a computer, you need to connect to the internet and APIs, SDKs, ecosystems of providers. It's quick and easy. The hard thing to do is to compete with Gmail. <laughs> but most people who are programming with email are not building superhuman or hey, right? Like they're just plugging email into some business app An afternoons work in many cases. The moment you want to program with money, you realize it's a very different world. Whether you're in Colombia or in the US or in India matters a lot, right? The internet is not one place for money. And there's almost no APIs or SDKs. And you end up having to work with banks, a few hundred of them globally, a dozen, two dozen here in the US. And they vary, but they mostly all suck. Their tech is outdated. It hasn't really changed much since 2010 for in terms of bank tech. They're heavily regulated and they don't know how to manage that regulation. So they, you end up having to do a lot of it. And then it all ends up being very inefficient and costly, costly mostly in terms of time. So it doesn't take three years anymore, it takes like 12 to 18 months. It still takes 12 to 18 months. It doesn't take six weeks, right? And so it doesn't take an hour. And that is, you know, that's still frustrating. But if you get through all of it and you finally build, you'll realize that it's actually much easier to compete with Bank of America than it is to compete with Google. <laughs> but again, most people who are programming with money are not building a bank. There's a market for that. I don't know how many, there's like I don't know, 20, 40, 100 in the US maybe. But the vast majority of people who are programming with money just want to plug some money flow into some app that they have and just do it. And it's really, most of it is very simple use cases, very varied by industry, but overall quite simple. But it still takes, even that takes like 12 months. <laughs> and it's very frustrating and Things have gotten better, but they are still very, very far from good. That's why I created Silla. We are the money API for the internet. You should be able to wake up and get live with us in a few hours. Not quite there yet, but we regularly have customers who come to us, sign up. They do their KYC, KYB, link bank accounts, create digital wallets. Do ACH debits, credits, transfers, you know, manage their funds flows on our ledger. We have a blockchain integration. So they even use our, you know, our stablecoin on Ethereum. And they get live with that regularly in six weeks, from like signing a deal to being live in production. Our best actually is like 20 days. So we haven't been able to get it back down to like a few hours just yet. <laughs> there is still a lot of r- compliance complications, but we have figured that most of that out. And it's mostly us. I mean, we do have a bank partner, Evolved Bank and Trust based down in Memphis, Tennessee. Great guys. I'd say the best in the space, honestly. And it's validating that, you know, even Stripe works with them, right? And some, several other large guys. But on a working basis, our customers typically never talk to them. They don't need to. We do due diligence. We do background checks, information security. All the stuff that's important that banks care about, we do. We just do it efficiently, right? And we do it and we are like, Very clear about what we will do and how to do it and get our customers live and in production and focusing on their business, not on like ACH or Ledger's or KYC tuning. It's all done. It's all on the platform. Bank reporting, all of that stuff. It's happening. It's in the background. You just code to the APIs. And talking about the origin of the name, right? Like Scylla itself is the oldest word that we know of that at some point in history meant money. In ancient Sumeria, in like 2800 BC, in Uruk or Ur, if you were a daily wage laborer, you would have gotten paid 60 silas of barley a month. And, you know, we have the cuneiform tablets that people have dug up, done research on this, and I think uh, Harari even wrote about it in like Sapiens, right? So a sila is actually, in ancient Sumeria, it's a unit of volume. It's about a little bit less than a liter, basically. And barley money was the original money before gold money, before silver money, because the whole economy of Sumeria ran on barley. And so they just standardized it and paid each other in these like standardized volume counts of barley. Now a foreman back then would make 2,000 silas of barley and nobody can eat that much barley. So it rapidly went from being like a, a measure to being like a unit of account, right? And most of this was actually just like on cuneiform tablets, you got paid and it was noted and ledgers all on clay, were built. And like that was the earliest infrastructure of banking that we know of, right? And it was all built on silas of barley. Still didn't have enough value. And so eventually they moved to talents and shekels were originally units of weight. And so for precious metals, it was by weight. And that became the next set of sort of currencies.
0: Love it. So uh, going back to uh, humanity's origins, I love it. Much like you are going to your family origins within banking. And so... I've actually talked to a few entrepreneurs who are building fintechs today and I believe they're going to be working with Sila. so there's no doubt that entrepreneurs are seeing value already. How long did it take you to launch, right? Cuz you know you, you've been working on it for a while. Not that long. I mean, I started working on it in like
1: early 18. And you know that is there was like finding my, my amazing group of co-founders and raising some money and then building out an engineering team to actually start writing code and all of that. I think it took about 12 to 15 months to build the first version of Scylla and get it live. And now we've been live for about 18 months. And, you know, team's growing, business is growing, things are going great. We have more customers than we can deal with, honestly. But that's the problem every entrepreneur wants to have, right? So it's all good. And it's good to see the pieces being validated. and yet. This entire space, all of it is just so, so early. And I think that's what a lot of people don't get, right? Because you see very large companies like PayPal and Stripe and Affirm and, and all of this now, right? And, but I don't think most people understand like, how big financial services is. Advertising globally is like a $600 billion revenue industry. Sounds like a lot. And honestly, that's been kind of revolutionized by like Google and Facebook. They make most of their money from advertising. That's all changed in the last 20 years, right? Financial services globally is like a 17 trillion industry. And you think about it, right? Like what is the economy made of? It's not made of advertising. (laughs) The economy is made up of like financial services, healthcare, manufacturing, I don't know, logistics, supply chain, and stuff like that, right? Like that's the real economy that you see around you. It's still... 90% of the world, (laughs) advertising is just this like thin layer on top of it. And all that the internet has done so far is really revolutionize advertising. In financial services, everybody from PayPal to Scylla combined, even today, doesn't have 1% market share. And I think that is all finally going to change. I mean, who has all of that 17 trillion? Like 30,000 banks and wealth managers globally, (laughs) right? And, And you look at the funds flows and you look at the revenues of the big guys. And it is just mind boggling once you start adding it up. And so all of that is going to start changing. It's not even going to really change in this decade, right? We're not fintech isn't going to get to 50% market share of financial services this decade, but it might go from like one to 10. (laughs) And that itself will be truly ginormous because it's such a ginormous industry. And so I think the large guys like PayPal and Stripe will just get larger. I think some of them will become trillion dollar companies this decade. And then The next set of like guys who are beginning to get large, I mean, there's already unicorns like, you know, like Wise or the old TransferWise and folks like SoFi and others. They'll already probably become like 100 billion companies in the decade. The billion ones will go to 10 uh, we'll go to like 100. The ones that 100 will go to like a trillion and then there'll be a whole new probably 500 plus unicorns fintech unicorns a decade from now, because that's just that how large that space is. And we are here to enable all of it, right? We're here to enable that transformation and hopefully be the API layer that helps all of those guys build and succeed.
0: Reminds me of a phrase we recently had, milin Mejere, CEO and founder of Street, and he said the coming decade will be the golden age of fintech. Last decade was the golden age of tech. I, I definitely resonate with that. I agree with that. So Shamir, let's say you and I are talking in a few years, and I'm not going to put a specific number, but a few years from now, what would be a successful outcome for you and Sila when we talk again in, in a number of years? So what
1: I come back to is like, you you look at like a large company, like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Airbnb, Airbnb. People don't realize I think they had like more than 300 people in their payments team a year ago, might be more now. And people are like, Airbnb is not a fintech. (laughs) It is. It's bigger than many mid-sized fintech companies. Why? And you're like, well, if you wake up today in New York and decide that for July, you're going to book a vacation home in like Colombia, and then in June, you decide to cancel it and rebook it in, I don't know, Vietnam. (laughs) Somehow Airbnb makes all of that work. And of course, I'm sure they use like Stripe and Flutterwave and like twenty other providers globally. But there isn't any one thing that does it all—not the way they needed to. And so they had to build it right. And being a tech company, they really care about experiences, and they focused on building that experience, which meant building that mid-sized fintech. This is true of all the big guys, right? Like Google and Apple, all and Facebook—they all built those in-house fintechs just to serve themselves. Because there wasn't any sila. (laughs) And so five years from now, if a developer in Argentina wakes up and decides that he wants to build an Airbnb or something, right? And he wants to onboard a customer in New York and help them book something, (laughs) a villa in Argentina, and then cancel it and then rebook it in Vietnam or whatever. I want them to just be able to do that and they should be able to do that without having to build a 300 person in house payments team over like 6 years to make it happen right should be able to just come to Scylla, build it and they can focus on the bookings piece and the business that that is the business right the funds flow behind it all is complex it's regulated it's like ach and cards and wires and sepa and bacs and fast pay and upi and all of this but that's not their business their business is just make all of that work for me i want to do hotel bookings travel anything. right? And that's what I want to enable. And that would be successful. We do it in the U.S. now, but do it globally, do it everywhere.
0: And I'm sure we'll be seeing uh, even more from you uh, than just that. I'm I'm sure uh, it's going to be a bright future. I'm I'm excited for you to, that you joined us. This has been super interesting, Shamir. Uh, Before we let you go, we do have quite a few entrepreneurs that stop by the show, but also we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show, right? And you've already told us a bunch of war stories building companies. But when you look back, what would you say are some of those things that have helped you as an entrepreneur and that you would like to share with aspiring builders?
1: So for me, I mean, I know people do it and a lot of respect to them, but I cannot imagine doing this without co-founders, right? I don't know how, I really just don't understand it because I'm like so many times it's a but also even more, it's simple was like, Josh was ready to throw in the towel, but Shamir was not, or Alex was not. Or Shamir was ready to throw in the towel, but Josh was not. And you just support yourself through the hard times. And you're like, fuck, what are we going to do now? (laughs) Right? did all this work and it feels like we're back at square one now. And it's like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to pick ourselves up. We're going to go and do it all again. And we are not giving up. And that tenacity is really what you need to succeed in this space, especially Because so much of it is just about grinding it out, that classic, like you work for five years and then you're an overnight success. And for four of those five years, it's just you and your co-founders cranking through and getting there, right? And there is no other way to do it except through like, have a big vision, find the smartest people you can, and then just sheer
0: tenacity. Ramir, thank you again for joining us. Really, really fascinating. We hope to see you. Again, there's an open invitation for you to come back and also to stop by campus. I'm sure everyone will love to see you in person once we're on the other side of COVID. Hopefully very soon. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Shamir. Thank you so much, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton FinTech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.